Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Once a year, as I said, we give our service to questions and answers. I'm going to have the pastors come forward. Please come down here, guys, with the microphones. If you have a question about the Bible, the Christian life, Christian doctrine, you wave down one of these guys with the microphone, and uh, we're going to jump right into it here. I just ask that your question be your question. Uh, I ask that it be a sincere question, and I ask that it would be something at least related somehow to the Bible, the Christian life, Christian doctrine, uh, walking in this world as a disciple. So uh, you track them down. We got three guys right here. Look at this. Three pastors. We're over-pastored here. It's awesome. I love it. So raise your hand. Get it, let's, get a, let's get it started. Don't be shy. And pastors, you force someone to ask a question if they won't. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Let's do it. I engage with a lot of Roman Catholics at church and also in my community. Um, and usually I take them to Scripture. I'll show them that we're saved through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And usually they'll tend to agree with me with what the Bible says. But then they'll say, but Rome doesn't exactly teach that. And I have church history on my side and early church fathers on my side. Um, and I typically respond with, well, if we look at church history, um, not in a biased fashion, we see that early church fathers believed all sorts of things, things that I can affirm, things that the Roman Catholic can affirm, um, and that we need to filter what they say through, through Scripture, like any other believer. Um, so my question is just, how would you respond to that? And also, um, when they bring up apostolic succession. Yeah, I, well, I think you, you, you're dealing with it well. If, if, if I had a Catholic that said that, I would say, so if you want to share with your secularized neighbor uh, that they should become a Catholic, and you share the Christian faith with them, and they said, um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that's all good. I believe a lot of that. But I also, you know, I believe a lot of other things, too, because I got... I got CNN on my side. I got NPR on my side. You know, I got the polls on my side. So I'm kind of, I believe that too. You'd say, okay, well, you've got to decide where you're going to get your information, right? Uh, and, and that's the problem with any two-source religion. And that is, yeah, they're going to say, well, we believe the Bible, but we also have this as our authority. And Rome sets itself up as that. And I say Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they've set themselves up, but they've codified that. They've said that we are the authority, right? We are the authority. Uh, the Bible is the authority, and they split their authority into two parts, into the magisterium, the decisions that they've made, and tradition, things that have happened in, in the past. Well, again, how do we know if that tradition is right? Well, they say, well, because apostolic succession, right? We've got the pontiff. He represents Christ. He's the vicar of Christ on earth. And then you say, well, what about even when you had two popes? You had a pope and an antipope. You had, you know, a lot of, of uh, rescinded you know, papal bulls and, and, and speaking ex cathedra for the church. So at some point, we have to have a source of truth. You have to have an arbiter of truth, and you have to have something that is going to be the end of what's going to end all discussions about doctrine. And that's why the Reformation was so wildly uh, successful, because they said, we're going to go back to Scripture alone. Now, they're going to say, well, there's a lot of, you know, got Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists, and you, know, you guys are just a mess. And we're going, yeah, but we're not a mess in the sense that all of us would agree that the Scripture teaches about salvation, what Scripture teaches about salvation. 
You've always got cults. You've got a lot of people that say a lot of crazy things about a lot of things, but the church has a Protestant movement with all the denominations in it. And I know they hate that. They think they're all unified. Uh, even though I can't find a single Catholic, it seems, that believes everything in the catechism of the Catholic Church, and yet they're saying, well, we have a unified do- body of doctrine. Well, I'm saying the Protestants have a unified body of doctrine. It's called the Bible. Uh, and there may be some groups that, that believe differently about baptism or about how to do the Lord's Supper or whatever, but this is our source of truth. So I, I just think in every situation, you've got to ask who says, right? You're going to say there's a purgatory. I'm going to say who says, and, and they're going to say, well, the church says, tradition says, right? Uh, or, or, or Mary, Mary was sinless. Well, who says, okay? And, and I'm going to say, well, the scripture doesn't say that. Matter of fact, the scripture says Mary needed a savior. She said that in the Magnificat in, in, in Luke 1. Um, she, if she's this co-redemptrix, uh, as so many uh, in, in Rome would say, uh, there's not a single mention of her outside of the gospel. None of it makes any sense. So um, I, I'm going to go back to what the reformers have said and say we believe that Scripture is our sole basis of, of truth. And, you know, what I find is a lot of people, when you argue about specific details, they will say, well, I don't believe that. And I say, well, yeah, but your church believes this. And at some point when you can separate them enough with logic from the Scripture from their church, then you're going to say, well, at some point when, when we break all these tentacles of your belief with a doctrine that is codified as Rome's official doctrine, at some point you've got to ask yourself, then why are you still there? At some point you should agree with the truth of the scripture and, and unmoor yourself. And they say, tradition, this is my background and my culture. Okay, I, I have a culture, right? My culture is, is United States of America, but I have to break with that and say, no, but I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and that comes first. That's hard. Um, there's a lot of books in our, a little shelf of books in our bookstore from former Catholics that I think may be helpful there to take that discussion further. All right, where I can't see very well. Okay, yeah, Pastor Mark's in the back. Oh, that's Hi. not Pastor Mark, Pastor Kempis. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Pastor Mike. I have two questions. Um, how do you deal with Christians who say they're homosexuals, but they're celibate? They're not going to act on those desires and then two, I have family members who are, are practicing those kind of behavior. And how do you handle that with compassion, but yet firm about that sin? So how do you balance that without alienating them? Yeah, I don't know that you can. I mean, if that's the goal, to not alienate them, I, I don't know that I can help you. All I can tell you is that we would never deal with other sins in the way that Matthew Vines and all these people in the middle try to say, well, we're going to identify ourselves as homosexuals, but say we're homosexual celibate Christians. And I'm going to say, well, that has nothing to do with what we see in Scripture when it talks about us being identified with our sin prior to conversion, right? But we become Christians, we're washed, we're redeemed, right? Such were some of you. That's, that, that is my old identity. It's not my identity now. And I'm not going to say, hi, right? My name is Mike Fabares. I'm a thief, right? Hi, my name is Mike Fabares. I'm, you know, an alcoholic. That's not the way we approach the Christian life. Uh, that's who I was. If, do I struggle with desires in these areas? I might, but I'm ashamed of those things. I'm ashamed even to speak of those things. I repent of those things. I condemn those things as against what God's rule says. So there is, you know, obviously there's, it's easy for us to open the Bible and say, you should not be a thief. Right? You should not be a pedophile. You should not be a homosexual. You should not be a, you know, a, a transvestite, or, or as, that's the old word, sorry. Uh, you should not be transgender. You should not be transgender fluid. We can say that, but then they say, well, I'm a Christian. I want you to affirm and accept me because I have all of those things and I identify that way, but I'm going to choose not to do it. 
Okay? And I'm saying, I don't think there's any room in Scripture for seeing it that way. The old man who I was, look how often Paul uses that. that that's gone. Right? I'm a new man. Do I struggle as a new man in Christ? Yes. But I'm not identifying with my old man. And so these are things that, uh, because they've become so cherished in modern society, as they were in Sodom and Gomorrah, we applaud this behavior. Right? I can get all kinds of likes online if I come out today as the homosexual pastor of Compass Bible Church in South Orange County. Right? Uh, and, and, and I can get a lot of people applauding me. And because of that, right, you have all of this happening in our culture where they're saying, well, can't we somehow in the church kind of ride on that popularity of these things, right? Think about today the transgenderism and gender fluidity of our kids, and it's all, if you look at it, scatterplotted. It's happening, right, in the, the, the cultural elite centers of the, of, the, of the world, right, of our country, right, in New York and, and L.A. and Chicago and, and, and in the Northwest. It's like we're trying to blame this on biology, right? It's part of some evolutionary biology, but it's all it's part of, a, of an, an, an a, a, a ideal in people's minds that this is, this is the cool and right thing to do. Our teens today will be applauded, right, for, for jumping on this bandwagon. So I'm saying the church can't get, they can't, we can't go there. And we're going to say, listen, this is wrong, just like every other sin is wrong. And we're not going to identify ourselves with a sin as a Christian, even if that was a struggle that I had or still have. I'm going to say, I'm going to continue to put to death whatever remains fleshly in me, to quote Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. So that's a hard thing in our day. I get it. And to say, well, this is the position. Now I want to have this position. You don't have this position, but I don't want to alienate you. I, 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 can't, I, I can't help you other than to say, be nice. I can be as nice as I want to about saying what I just said, but if I said it in a room, right, full of pro-LGBTQ plus people, right, I'm going to be attacked in every way, right? Uh, So I I don't think we can win this if we're going to say, well, I want to somehow do this so that they will like me. I want to do this so they will accept me. I want to do this so that they won't attack me. They, They are a hostile crowd that is now saying to us in culture, you had better affirm this. And we're saying as Christians, we can't affirm it. And we won't affirm it within our church, even if there's a segment of our church that struggles with these temptations, any more than you struggling with, with temptations to be an adulterer or a pedophile or, or a thief or, right, or a liar or a, a, a foul-mouthed person, right? You may struggle with that. We're not here starting small groups to say, all right, all the, all the people that struggle with vulgarity, we're going to have a Bible study for you right? We're not going to do that. We're not going to identify with those things. We're going to confess them, repent of them, and do our best to continue to put down desires that are out of step. They're condemned in Scripture as, as wrong. There's just no way around that. And again, that may be the thing that puts us all in jail, or at least pastors particularly, me in jail, um, one day when we become like Canada or Europe or places where this is becoming a problem, uh, a political and legal problem. But so be it. The church has struggled with this from the beginning. When Paul was saying what he was saying in Romans chapter 1 about homosexuality, um, Rome, I mean, this was rampant in Rome, right? We were ramping up into a, uh, uh, a kind of promiscuity and homosexuality that was over the top. Nero was, was marrying teenagers, right, in, in Rome. And, and that was going to happen in the 60s, right, of, of the first century. So it's not like hey, well, that was just the ethic of the day. Like, like Paul was writing the New Testament in America in the 1950s. No, he wasn't. He's writing the New Testament in a time like ours. 
So we got to know that we're always called to be countercultural, and it offended a lot of people. And like Jesus said, when people said, we're offended by that, or someone told him, you're offending the, the disciples or, or the, the Pharisees when you say that. Oh, well, and I don't mean to be cavalier, and I do love you, but I, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I'm not going to be coerced by the culture that you have behind you to say, well, okay, can we carve out some way to have a mitigating position? Matthew Vine's a classic example of a guy within evangelicalism who said, we're going to find a mitigating position. We can still say we're homosexual. We're just not practicing or, you know, we're, we're celibate. We, we just kind of restrain that. But I still want to be identified as, as this. We were talking about a book last night um, Carl Truman wrote called Strange New World. It was a condensed version of his book, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I think I put that on the back of the worksheet a couple of times. But we are in a day when we're trying to say what's most important about you is being authentic to whatever you feel. And that expression of that authenticity is so sacrosanct. It's so important to people that now we have people converted to Christ saying, yeah, but that's my real identity. So I want to have that identity within the church. And I'm saying, no, you can't because it's not biblical. You forsake that, you repent of it, right? When you battle with the feelings, you don't come to church and say, where's my group for people that have this? You say, we're all fighting our temptations and they're all common to people, right? I mean, we could build groups and we'd only probably have about 12 of them, right? Because there's only so many temptations and categories that we all deal with, but we're fighting those and every day we're trying to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And we forsake who we were because in Christ, we're a new person in Christ. And one day, all my desires that are contrary to God's truth is going to be stripped away, Romans chapter 8, when I have a body that is glorified with every impulse of my body, knowing and wanting, knowing and wanting exactly what Christ wants. And I'm going to look back at my old desires and go, man, I, I, I not only hated those, I fought them during my Christian life, and now, praise God, they're gone because my flesh has been redeemed. And that's coming, according to Romans chapter 8. Hard question, but a good, good question. Yes, thank you. Hi, my question is, how would you explain to a non-Christian why we can trust the revelations that John had that produced the book of Revelation and why we can't trust, let's say, Joseph Smith's vision of Christ? Right, right. Well, because John was there as an apostle in John chapter 14 through 16 when Jesus said, I'm going to tell you many things that you can't handle right now. I'm going to tell you these things. And they became these writing apostles that built us a New Testament revelation. Joseph Smith, though he likes to point at John 10 and other places, say, well, you know, I was kind of looked to in this text somewhere as this, you know, this, this new prophet to keep the sheep of another fold. Listen, the Bible's very clear about the apostles being authorized to do what they did. Uh, all the Johnny-come-lately prophets, including Muhammad and Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy and anybody else who wants to claim that status, does not have biblical authority from Christ to do that. We do. The apostles and prophets built the foundation for the church, and then we just reiterate that information to the world. So it, it's John had um, that authority because Christ granted him that authority. Joseph Smith does not have that authority because Christ did not grant him that authority. Any more than I can go in the back green room and say, well, I got, I got authority there because Christ just appeared to me, so I'm here now saying that. It, it, John was, was an apostle, and, and that's a different ballgame, and it's a different set of credentials than Joseph Smith uh, claims to have. And, and, and it, Joseph Smith, if you really are the prophet, right, which he's not, um, here, here's the thing about believing John. 
when Christ is showing us his connection to all the prophets, and he goes all the way back to Abraham, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Um, all of that is, is like us. It'd be like me saying, for the last five weeks, I have gotten up here and made very specific prophecies, and for the last five weeks, they've all come true. Very specific, whatever they might be, and I couldn't possibly have made that up. And you go, wow, Pastor Mike, every Sunday, he gives us a brand new prophecy, and it's amazing, and it comes true exactly as he said. And if today I said, well, your house is going to, uh, Tuesday night, it's going to explode, and uh, you know, or a meteor is going to fall out of the sky and destroy your house. So, um, you know, I just want to tell you, uh, I wouldn't go to sleep in your house on Tuesday night. I think you'd say, wow, I'm not going to do that because Pastor Mike has got a batting average here that's he's batting 1,000. And I'm saying when Christ looks at the people that he's authorizing both in the past, he's affirming and confirming, and those in the future, these guys are batting 1,000. And then John comes in after coming to the upper room discourse and being told he was going to be one of these guys who's going to write scripture, and he does, and I'm thinking, well, that hasn't come true yet. It's not Tuesday yet, but I believe what he says because he's been authorized as a part of a cadre of people, the apostles and prophets, who are able to pin things that have already come true. And if someone else came to you in the padding and goes, well, I think your house is going to flood on, on Monday. I, well, who are you, right? Pastor Mike's been batting a 1,000 with his prophecies. You're just some guy at the donut table. I don't even know who you are, right? You, you should be skeptical of the people who come without the track record. And the track record, connection of the track record, the hub is Christ himself who made this promise to the apostles. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. There are a lot of people who will say, because you don't know me or know the experiences I've been through, you can't really speak truth to me. Uh, how do you respond to those people? Yeah, I, I say truth has hard ed- edges. It doesn't, uh, as Ben Shapiro says, it doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't really care about your experience. If we're all on a ship and the ship is sinking and I come to your cabin and I bang on the door and I say, hey, get to the lifeboats because the ship is sinking. You Well, how in the world can you disrupt my backgammon time? Uh, you don't know me. You don't know why I'm here on this trip. You don't know how I feel right now. I might have got a call from my girlfriend. I just got broke. I, I, just, I just got dumped. You can't be telling me to go to the lifeboats. I don't want to go to the lifeboats. You, you, know, you need to get to know me first before you tell me to get to the lifeboats. I'm just saying, well, if the facts are the ship is sinking, it really doesn't matter if I know you, right? John the Baptist didn't go out and say, well, I really need to know all those Pharisees before I tell them they're a brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath that is to come. And in, in reality, I don't need to know you. I don't need to know anything about you. But again, to quote Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, we are so in our minds sacrosanct, sacrosanct about the identity of ourselves, that all that matters is our own experience. And really out of existentialism and all of the things that have kind of moved out of, as I quoted last week, the enlightenment, there has been this increasing autonomy, this increasing sense of of experiential knowledge that becomes the most important thing. And and therefore, uh, I can't even listen to you telling me the ship is going to sink unless I get you to know me, right? And and, uh, do I think relationships and evangelism is important? Yeah. I think you should do that. It's helpful, right? But it's not necessary, and it doesn't in any way change the way the truth is either true or not true. And if Christ is coming back, and he says, you need to trust in Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Or to quote Acts 4, 12, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If that's true, and there's a day coming 
right? We don't know the day or the hour. We don't know the times or the seasons to quote Acts 1. If Christ is coming back and you better be saved by trusting in his name, I really don't need to know any, any of you to say that to you and have it be true. Is it helpful if we go to dinner? Yeah. Some of you here, I've never been to dinner with you, and I've been your preacher for a long time, and you learn things from me. Some of you, I, I, I don't even know your name. I don't know your middle name. I don't know your favorite color. But we've had, I hope, a good exchange of truth that's impacted your life that's not based on our personal relationship. Does it help in a church? Right? Do you listen better to the preacher if you have some great relationship with him? Yeah, that, perhaps you do. And in small churches, some people like that, and that's a good thing. Fine. But you don't need that. You don't need that not only when there's preaching from the word about truth, and you don't need it in evangelism. It's just another example, the symptomatic example of the really the this overweening sense of importance of me and my feelings. What matters is is the is the ship sinking, and is there a lifeboat, and is it buoyant, right? And and, and those are the hard facts. And when Jesus looked at a guy like John the Baptist, who wasn't sitting there building relationships in bridge relational evangelism, and he's out there crying as a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, he turns and says, this is the greatest prophet that has ever been born of women. That's a huge resume builder. And Jesus thinks he's the best. And he wasn't a relational evangelist guy. And I'm not saying we, we don't want to do that. Of course, in our relationships, we do that. That's helpful. My point is it's not necessary, and it's even hailed by Christ himself who died for us, who is our mechanism of salvation. And he's saying, John the Baptist, amazing evangelist, best ever. And I'm going, well, what kind of evangelist was he? Well, you can read about him and say, wow, I guess I don't need to coddle your feelings or your self-expression or even build a big relationship before I can even start to talk about Christianity with you. That may seem harsh, but it's true. And, and, And I'm trying to answer the question biblically. Yeah. Where are we at? Call it out. Somebody got a mic? Yes, go. Hey, Pastor Mike. Uh, I asked you a question yesterday. Thanks for answering it. Got a different one for you. Um, Deuteronomy 23.3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, if you look at the genealogy of Christ, there's five women listed um, one of them is Ruth, who was a Moabitess, and just wondering how that's reconciled. Yeah, read the next verse. Because they did not meet you, meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired you against Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor, a Mesopotamia, to curse you. Right. Here is this seduction that had to be overcome in, in the culture that they had done in influencing the Israelites. And he said, we're not, how many generations? Right? Not 10. Not going to have them a part of this thing. So this was a very practical situation. It's like, it's like your kid goes out and starts smoking pot because he hangs out with Johnny down the street. And you go, you ain't, you ain't dealing with that kid for the next 10 years. Right? I don't even want you to see him. And because you're so livid over the fact, and justly so, that this kid is a bad influence on your kid. You start quoting 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. You go, you're severing that. That's what happened historically in, in Israel. Right? You look at the genealogy of Christ and you say, okay, but is it that God isn't in his redemptive grace doing good things among that, 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 that nation? Of course he is. And of course he will. And even in the genealogy itself, having people in the genealogy that were just like out of left field, was the whole point was, look at God's redemptive work. I preached a message about, uh, when I forget what I called it, something like uh, the grace of inclusion or something like that, 
you know, or the, inclu- the gracious inclusion of an exclusive God. It, the point is, you know, God's terms are very exclusive. I just quoted, right? The way, truth, life, no man comes to the Father except through him. And yet the way he shows the variety of people that he is drawing to himself, the genealogy of Christ even, I think, helps us in that regard. And I addressed some of that in the sermon I preached in Luke when we went through his genealogy. Um, But yeah, I I think the practical matter for them at the time when this was a prohibition was not ceremonial. It was was social. It was it was the social intercourse between the nations. So um, he had a reason for it, and I made you read it. That's the reason that he prohibited them. Good morning, Pastor Mike. Good morning. Okay, so I have a question. And so uh, for the young single adults here, I'm talking the members at Alliance, not to call anyone out, but how would you recommend uh, and some general best practices of how to go about navigating uh dating with other young single adults and uh in particular maybe some advice of um how to be respectful of other people's emotions uh because i think um we don't we want to be careful about being too intentional to the point you offend people um all right so thank you for asking uh, okay. answering the question yes. in advance yeah um well you need to first of all decide whether or not as you read first corinthians chapter seven you're called to romantic relationships and marriage, right? And, and if you're content not being married, right, as Jesus said, you're, if you can't accept this, accept it. He's giving this conversation in Matthew 19 about marriage being permanent. And so here's a permanent covenant relationship that's supposed to reflect God's permanent covenant relationship with his people. And it's a serious thing. And the apostles' minds were blown when, when he was talking about it. And he said, listen, some people are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, right? Some do it for men, some do it for the sake of the kingdom. And, 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 they were like, wow, this is amazing. This is like, marriage is like the ultimate you know, ball and chain, right? That's kind of how the apostles apply, applied, they heard his words. And he, he says, well, you know, if you can accept it, you ought to accept it. So that's a small group of us, right? I say us, not me. But it's a small group of Christians who can say, I'm content being single. And there are some people in this church, and I've heard it said as recent as, as last week, right? I'm content being a single person, and I'm absolutely content with that. I don't need romance. I don't need sex. I don't need marriage. I just, I don't need it. Great. Praise God. The Bible says now you can, according to 1 Corinthians 7, give your wholehearted focused devotion to Christ, right? I can't do that. I got a house to deal with and stuff I would never buy for that house if I were single that breaks and I got to fix because I'm married and I got a family. So that, that, that distracts me from my role, and yet God says that's a service and a gift that God gives me, and I ought to do it, and that's a good thing. So if I know I'm called to marriage, and you're sitting there saying, yes, I'm frustrated as a single person, and that's in a biblical sense, in a fine sense, that I want to be married, right? then you need to date. right? And so the singles in this church or any other church, they need to start asking people out on social engagements to go meet one-on-one with people of the opposite sex and have social in- conversations. That's called a date. And you put it on your Google calendar and say, I'm going to this place at this time. It's a date. And so nothing wrong with that. Uh, And here's what you should do not to offend people. If someone says, I don't like this date, don't ask me out on another one. And they say that in a variety of different ways. Sometimes they try to be subtle and not hurt feelings. Then you need to listen to them, right? You're not going to be a creeper, right? By trying to force your romantic feelings on anyone. So I'm just saying this, you have to be intentional and you have to listen well and you have to respond to what's being said. If a gal's going, I I didn't like that Starbucks coffee with you, it wasn't the coffee, it was you. And some way or another, they're going to say, I'm not interested in going any further. But all I'm saying to both the guys and the girls, regardless 
who you are, you should be dating. You should be, especially in that age group, you should be getting together more often and trying to see if there's someone here that might become my life partner. And, and that's important. So get active, get more involved in dating, right? And, and that needs to happen with an intentionality. Uh, because we know, just like if, if I knew you were called to work, like you're a man and you're supposed to provide for your family, and I said, how's the job hunt coming? And you go, well, you know, I'm just kind of waiting for God to supply one for me, a job, some, some, uh, hopefully you'll get one. Say, so, yeah, but have you been out there trying to get one? Well, you know, and I trust the Lord. I'm going to go, well, you're going to be broke, right? You, you, what you need to do is to trust the Lord and work. And that means you go and get your resume out. You need to work full time at trying to get a job. And I'm saying single, you need to be full-time with your social capital, right? You need to be trying to find a wife or a husband. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think we need to work at that more. I think Christians so often kind of over-romanticize, and I say that in a spiritual sense, um, this, this dating thing. And I'm saying, just start dating. Would you please, all of you, start dating. If you're called to marriage, start dating. And if you don't like it, right, just somehow make that diplomatically clear. And then you know what? Listen. If they don't want to date you again, just listen and move on. Just stinking move on. Because here's, here's the reason, right? It doesn't help, right? I, it, it takes two to have a, a romantic relationship, right? And, and I'm not going to force, you know, my affections on someone that is not interested. Well, if they just really knew, if they could just see the, the wonderful side that my mom sees in me, they would love me, right? Just, you just need to listen and then respond. And, and then move on, move on. I know it's hard because you've already done all this in your imagination, in your heart. I could just see us together. She's perfect for me. I just want, stop, right? Go on a date, see how it goes. See if you can get a second date. If you can't, move on. Well, then I'd be like, it could be that I could be dating a bunch of people in this group by the time I find a wife. Yep, that may be how it is. Just like a lot of interviews you go to to get a job and um, it may take the, the fifth, sixth, or 15th interview before you get a job. But you're called to get a job. And if you know that you're not content being single, then you need to go and find, find a, a mate. Well, shouldn't you know me really well before you tell me all that? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I'm trying to answer questions succinctly and, and, and matter-of-factly here. That, that's kind of my thing. Yeah, okay. Good morning, Pastor Mike. Um, my question is in regards to rapture theology. So pre-tribulation theology didn't originate until John Nelson Darby began to teach it in the 1830s, um, whereas explicitly in Scripture in Mark 13, it says, after that tribulation, then the Son of Man will gather his elect. Second um, Thessalonians, it says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, uh, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until after the lawless one is revealed. Um, so my question is, where is it explicitly stated in Scripture that uh, there's, there's a pre-trib rapture and that will be snatched away prior to the tribulation? Yeah, well, just, just well, number one, Darby wasn't the first. Uh, he was the first to systematize it. Um, but there's a lot, there's not only pre-millennialism, but uh, pre-wrath and pre-tribulational hints and references. We don't have the extensive systematizing of pre-tribulationalism before Darby, I understand. But it doesn't mean that this was absent. All these passages were there. People grappled with these texts. Here's why. In the New Testament, you cannot understand a thing about the Olivet Discourse or the book of Revelation without the Old Testament promises that put all this together. You can't read Revelation without reading Daniel. You can't understand the great tribulations, Jesus said, that is coming on the earth that 
there's never been a tribulation like it, and there never will be, right? You can't find out what that is unless you're reading in light of Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble, unless you're reading Daniel chapter 9, understanding there's a 70th week of this chronology that has not been played out yet. And the passage that you quoted is a great example of the series of events that are all a part of the day of the Lord that the Bible talks about. For instance, uh, this day will not come unless this man of lawlessness is revealed, right? That he's going to destroy with the breath of his mouth. Here they are in, in, in uh, Thessalonica saying, we've missed it. They're being unsettled, much like the words that Paul used to the Galatians about being unsettled regarding circumcision. Someone's unsettling your mind saying, you've already missed the, the day of the Lord. You've already missed it. And he's saying this. It's, it's like this. It's like if I said to you, I send you out to the front uh, of the house, and I'm your dad, and you're going to catch the school bus. And you're out there, and I said, get out there, have breakfast, get out and wait for the school bus. And you're out there now panicked. You're saying, Dad, I've missed the school bus. I've missed the school bus. I've missed the school bus. But I've told you. I've told you twice or three times. You know what? You know what happens after you get on the bus and go away on the bus? Right? You know what happens next? The trash truck comes by. And then about 30 minutes later, the mail truck comes by and drops off the mail. And, they're going, and you're out there telling, you're trying to argue with me. We've missed the bus. We've missed the bus. And I said, haven't I told you? Right? You haven't missed the bus. If you missed the bus, right? you would have seen the mail truck, you would have seen the garbage truck. And so you haven't missed it. The point about the king of the south, to use the terminology from Daniel 11, or the horn, right, that becomes the world leader, or the beast, right, or the antichrist, to use First John's terminology, this is someone that rises to a place of prominence that the Bible puts and situates within a time that is promised in Daniel 9 for your people, Daniel's people, and your holy city for Israel and Jerusalem, which is where all the attention in the book of Revelation goes after chapter 6. From chapter 6 to 19, the focus, without any reference to the ecclesia or the church, the focus is on the Jewish people being brought into the time that Romans 11 talks about when the times of Gentiles is fulfilled and you have this period of time where God turns his attention, starting with 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. And God then is doing what he promised to do in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel in gathering his people together and what Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse. So much of what's going on, not only in Mark, but in Matthew, Matthew 24, is talking about that period of time. The Bible is not only speaking to us, the church. When Jesus talked, and they're talking about the temple, and he's talking about when you see the abomination that makes desolate that was spoken about by Daniel the prophet, all of these things he's put forward in a future apocalyptic and and, and, and eschatological calendar. Those things are for Israel, for Jerusalem, for his people, for the fulfilling of his promise to save all of Israel when the time of Jacob's trouble is playing itself out and God's tribulation comes on the planet. Everything for the one new man that, that Paul talked about, that God is teaching us in the book of Ephesians, for instance, is something different. And that's where I make a harder distinction between the church and Israel than you probably do. And I'm saying it wasn't Darby that came up with this. The distinctions in that were really established from the very beginning, even in the teaching in the second century, thinking about the difference between Israel's plan and the plan for the church. And the question is, how distinct are those programs? And I'm saying there is distinct enough that God is going to take the church up and meet, have us meet him in the air, which is distinct from Zechariah 14, when his feet come down and touch the Mount of Olives. And when that happens and it splits open after the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, I'm saying, 
right? It makes sense that that 70th week of Daniel that is now characterized by Israel is a distinction between what the church is doing and when the church program ends from Acts chapter 2 until the rapture and when the man of lawlessness makes a covenant with the people, breaks it halfway through in three and a half years, and then comes back and saves his people. He meets his people in the air. The elect and come, they not only gather the elect to the earth, but they gather. Look how carefully in the Olivet Discourse, both in Mark and in Matthew, you have the people, that, uh, the angels rather, sent out to gather people for judgment, right? That's not how it happens when Christ meets us in the air as a church, right? The Jew-Gentile, one new thing that God did in this economy we call the church is taking us home, right? While then he brings judgment to the people, he gathers us. Then at the end, Christ comes back. By the way, one is imminent. We don't know when it's going to happen. The other one, we've got all the biblical calendars telling us when he's going to come. And he comes at the end of that seven-year period, and then all the nations are gathered, Matthew 25, and there is a judgment of the nations. I'm just saying in my study, I'm agreeing, whether I agree with Darby or, or, or Calvin or disagree with whoever it is, Zwingli, it doesn't matter. What matters is I'm convinced by Scripture that I'm not pinning anything on Darby. I'm pinning it on the fact that in my study of Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, I'm saying I think everything that was said in 1 Thessalonians, it comports with the idea that there is a, another seven years that's coming that the church is not a part of, that God is going to play out his fulfillment of his promises and taking the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah, putting them together, bringing them to a place where then he's going to usher them into a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom that he repeats six times in Revelation chapter 20. So that's my view, and I think, you know, at least in my mind, it fits together and makes sense, and yours it may not because someone said, well, Darby came up with this, and if your pastor believes that, that's ridiculous. And I'm saying, well, I'm not pinning any of this on Darby uh, or Schaefer or anyone else. I'm just saying I, I'm, I'm at this point convinced in my eschatology in harmonizing all these passages. And to say, well, you know, they didn't really say the Trinitarian formula the way I believe it until the fourth century. If we were living in the fifth century and someone said, you believe that they are co-equal in persons or are in essence, but difference in, in persons, you believe that Trinity stuff? And you'd go, well, yeah, I believe it. So, you know, that, that hadn't been around, but for, for a hundred years. Well, it has been around from the beginning. It's just it wasn't solidified and systematized in a way that all of us speak the same language about the Trinitarian formula until, right, the fourth century. So was there no Trinity before that? Was it a new teaching? It wasn't a new teaching. It was just a teaching that was then defended and systematized and discussed. And I just think before people dismiss out of hand a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial eschatology, because, you know, I heard Darby came up with this. I'm just saying, to me, that's not, that's not all that persuasive. To me, I'm going to say, is it biblical? And then I think, let's dig in the passages of Scripture. And here's the problem, the difference, it's not a huge problem, but the problem I have is I cannot read the Old Testament the same way someone says, I don't believe in pre-millennial, pre-tribulational eschatology, uh, I'm going to say you've got a ton of passages you're going to struggle with in the Old Testament to read them in a normal sense, in a literal sense. And I do think this, and I would say this having studied both at, you know, amillennial places and premillennial places, I'm going to say I, I do think, and I've taken 900-level hermeneutics classes at amill places. I'm going to say I think it's the most consistently literal reading of Old Testament prophecy. And no discussion of eschatology should be solely based on New Testament text, proof texting. You've got to look at the whole picture and say, 
what does the Old Testament say about our New Testament eschatology? Because they all had it, right? There was nobody there in the, in the synagogues of the first century that didn't have the Old Testament foundation. So, and we can disagree on that. And you and I can disagree about eschatology and we'll high five and you're welcome at this church and it's all cool. But I would say, don't uh, demean people for believing in that because you think they don't know what they're talking about because Darby came up with this. That's just a, that's an out of hand dismissal of a theology I think we need to grapple with in the scriptures. But good question. Great question. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Pastor Mike. I wanted to ask about the Psalms in scripture where the psalmist seems to desire and invoke judgment on God's enemies. So how do we make sense of that? Or when are those expressions appropriate when we compare other verses where we should clearly desire salvation of God's enemies? Well, I think the overarching desire of godly people is that injustice and violence and, and oppression would end, okay? There's two ways that can end. The enemies and the oppressors can be destroyed. The unjust people and the rapists and the murderers and the pedophiles can be destroyed, or they can come to repentance. So I know in Scripture, my overarching desire is for those things to stop. And I think I'm a godly person in groaning over the injustice that is allowed because God's got a timetable and he's playing that all out whole promise of scripture is this season between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19 is going to be over. And though there's two chapters at the beginning and two chapters at the end that we go, well, everything was really nice then, that's the point. We're heading there. So God is going to end injustice. How will he end it? Well, you should want it to end one of two ways. And God is always saying, hey, the hopeful, optimistic, you know, day when you're not there grinding your teeth because someone, you know, raped your daughter is for you to pray right, for their repentance. And you should. You should pray for the, your enemies. And, and I'm saying, well, some days I pray like the psalmist, right? God, you're a just God. I prefer a little of that justice to be meted out right now. Um, and, and other days I pray like an evangelist. I'd love to have them come to Christ. Maybe I could share the gospel. Maybe someone can impact that person and, and they would be saying, so I know this, the ebb and flow of my feelings over all of this, I think reflect God in the sense that he is a uh, I'm created in his image, intellect, emotion, and will. And I'm not saying all my emotions are godly, but I'm saying sometimes that sense of like vengeance, right, is, is, is a reflection of God. Vengeance is mine. So he has that. It's like, I, I'm just, I don't have the tools to do it. I mean, I do, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I have some tools that'll do a lot of it, but I'm just saying, I'm not supposed to. I don't take vengeance in my own hands because I don't know the plan of God and I don't know whether or not there's repentance for that enemy. So, um, it, it, the, the psalmist, we call them the imprecatory psalms. There's a set of psalms where you see very strong emotions of the psalmist praying for the very thing I said, some days I pray uh, strongly that God would bring his justice on those people. Why? Because the overarching godly desire ultimately up here is I want it to stop, right? But then I don't know how it's going to stop, right? It's going to stop either through judgment one day on them and or it's going to stop through repentance and God's grace, um, I'm saying the emotion that we see in the Psalms, I think God put those there to remind us, I mean, those aren't, those aren't bad feelings. It's just that you have been told that it's not your job. Now, remember, David was, so many of the Psalms written by David, some of them dedicated to David. He was the commander-in-chief of the army, right? It, it's like um, going down to Pendleton, the Marine base, and they're going off to war to put down an, a, a nation that is unjustly attacking us or ancillary attacking us in some ancillary way, um, you would say, uh, go get them, right? Why? Because they are, according to Romans 13, they're an arm of a, of a sanctioned government, right? And we believe in this. The Bible teaches it. 
And you can listen to a sermon I preached on Romans 13 called uh, Wars and Bombs or something like that. Uh, I don't know the title, obviously, but you can look it up in Romans 13. Uh, the idea of, of that is um, God has destined, and not destined, he has uh, appointed them, designated them as an arm of God's vengeance. Okay, now, I can't take vengeance personally, but God has mechanisms like the government to take vengeance on wrongdoers. They don't bear the sword for nothing, right? They're God's minister to punish wrongdoers. So I know this, not only in a civil sense, that there are penalties upon people that they can invoke at the Santa Ana courthouse that I can't invoke. And the army can go out and kill people sanctioned by God justly. And it should be according to just law theory or just war theory. And you ought to do that because it's righteous and right. But we're saying to them, if I'm the chaplain there in the Marine Corps, get them. Now, remember who's writing a lot of the Psalms. I say all that to say David is the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel, and God is often using David's sword, which was so bloodied that he didn't even want him with the reputation of shedding so much blood to be the one who builds the temple. So he has his son Solomon. Solomon, does that sound familiar? Shalom, right? Peace, the son of peace, who's the prosperity guy with the silver spoon in his mouth, he's going to build the tabernacle or the temple, uh, moving it from a tabernacle to a temple. David is a man of war. So a lot of David's statements are almost like what you would hear at the barracks at, at, at you know, San Mateo or Camp, Camp Horno, right? They're getting ready to do the bidding of God. And, and that is a little different kind of prayer than we should be praying in church here in, in Elisa Viejo, right? I want their prayer as they go out to kill people, right, and, and drop bombs on people to be a little different. And I'm just saying you've got to at least keep in mind the authorship of some of these passages. And yet, I feel the way that... Uh, the psalmists do often. And I think that's just a reminder that, you know, God is saying these are uh, appropriate feelings, but you need to be angry. That's a command, by the way, in, in Ephesians, but not sin. So I need to know what my role is, right? Be angry and not sin. Uh, if I'm part of an army in David's day, taking out an enemy, I, I should say uh, to not sin is to make sure I don't overkill my enemy. Uh, to, for me, as a citizen, it's not to kill them at all. And I'm praying that I might be a tool of conversion for them. Does that help a little bit? Great. Yes, in the middle. Hi. Hi. Um, so we spoke briefly about this the other week. So um, it has to do with more of a current event. It seems every time I turn on my YouTube, I am seeing Rick Warren, Rick Warren, about female pastors, um, that I am now in sort of a close relationship with one. Uh being the boosters with high school. So I'm like, wow, okay, God wants me to learn about this. And um, so this one, I saw something about the SBC. Now, I really don't know what the SBC is other than Albert Moeller. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what that's all about, but I'm like, whoa, all right. Um, so I'm confused about that, but I did see he rebuked some decision. They had to form a committee to figure out this thing. And I'm like, well, isn't that in the Bible? So I'm, I'm really confused, and I'm just wondering, because I know I'm going to be asked by certain people that I'm sort of in an explosive relationship with, and I won't name names or anything like that, but um, it's just a matter of time. So I'm, I'm wondering how, what is this church, is Albert Muller going to stay? I don't even know what the SBC is, so. Sorry okay. I'm All right, well, let me, let me, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm okay. confused. Yeah. What's Right. SBC stands for the Southern Baptist Convention. It is the largest, right, evangelical denomination in our country. Uh, there's a ton of churches. And one of the problems with the Southern Baptist Convention is that their governance philosophy is that every church 
gets to decide for themselves the, the, the function and polity of their churches. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention can disfellowship a church uh, for being off the rails, but they don't have control like an Episcopal church or a Lutheran church or a church with some hierarchical structure. It's almost like it's an association of like-minded churches. And you think, well, if it's an association, you don't have authority over me, then what if I don't have a like mind about this issue? Well, then they can decide if it's a big enough issue and then take some action. I'm not a Southern Baptist, but you know, you know, they came to Anaheim here and had this debate and Rick Warren stood up and talked about, I mean, very, uh, you know, subtly and, 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 and you know, dealt with the issue that he's dealing with. He got up on stage and obviously ordained these female pastors. And the discussion they're having in the Southern Baptist Convention is, well, uh, we're recognizing the gift that a woman has of being a pastor, uh, and they can be on our staff as a pastor, but, you know, we're still not, we're not saying that they can be the senior pastor or the lead pastor of the church. Uh, that's where a lot of the Southern Baptists, not a lot, that's where a contingent of the Southern Baptists are, and it is dividing the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, yeah, what Moeller got up and talked about, and he was here the week before, you might remember, and, and went up there, we had lunch before he went up there, and he was like, oh, whatever, I won't tell you all this yet, but... Um, he was not looking forward to the meetings, let's just put it that way. And I probably shouldn't even say that publicly, but we're friends and just don't let that out. Um, but he goes up there and he does, he, he does he, there's some angst when the response from the leadership is, well, we're going to have a uh, committee formed to decide what the word pastor means, right? And that's where Moeller's like, if we, don't, if we can't define simple words like that, what, what are we doing? We can't be a confessional church if we you know, can't take a statement from the Baptist faith and message, which is their doctrinal statement, and say, you know, we, we don't even know what that means. So that was a bit of a rebuke by Dr. Moeller about kind of why I don't get it. It's clear. It's here. And, uh, you know, and Rick, his whole approach was, I'm not going to defend myself. Jesus didn't defend himself. And, you know, I've done a lot of great things. Look what I've done. And, and, and it's my last time. And, you know, last words before I get hung. And, you know, it was all, you know, chatty and fun. And Rick is that way, right? Uh, but, you know, I think Rick has done something that is unbiblical. I think it's very clear in Scripture that the office of pastor, and I don't care what you say about it, it's just a gift, but, you know, we have, you know, Tina and Linda and Susan on the staff, and they are all called pastors. Well, that's a role in the church, and, and, and you know, that's what they're trying to debate. Well, is it a role? Is it an office? Is it a gift? Is it, you know, what are we doing? And I'm saying, listen, every mother, right, has a pastoral gift, right? Think about it. If pastor is a shepherd, right, then of course every, I mean, unless you're a completely inept woman, right, you have the ability to shepherd. That's your whole job in your home is to shepherd those, those young lives, right? And, and we have women here that can shepherd at a much larger place. We're not saying, we're not going to give you the name pastor because pastor is a gender-exclusive office, right? And, and I don't care if you can say, well, there is that role. It's like all of you are teachers, right? Romans says all of you are, are equipped to teach. I get that. But we're not going to say, hey, I'm a teacher at the church. I wouldn't say, here's someone at our church. She doesn't meet the requirements, which is you have to be a male. That's just how God set it up. Just like I can't bear children no matter what Congress says, right? I cannot be a mother, right? right? Men are not mothers. I know that's, 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 that's a news flash for our, for our world, and I'll get arrested for it one day. But, but listen, th- that, that's what God said. I can't nurse like, babies. I can't, I can't have children come out of my body. I can't, I can't have them formed in my body. So God says, okay, women, this, right? Here's some certain things that are exclusive to you. Most things, human beings, in, in church and every other way, we share, right? We share all kinds of different things. But here, he says, I want the leadership of the church and the head leader in the home to be a male, right? And that's part of the whole issue of Genesis 3 and what went wrong there. But here's the point, right? You cannot fudge, I think, on this issue 
because you've come to a realization, which I think you can't, you didn't come to in a vacuum. You come to a realization to change your view on this topic and have women pastors on your website because this is where we are as a culture and there's a ton of pressure to do that. And I'm saying, I, I just, and I preach sermons after all of that where you've felt some of that bleeding through if you're in the know about all that's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. We cannot capitulate to the pressure of the culture on anything, right? On anything. We, we have to be able to say, if it's wrong in Scripture and clear, then it's wrong. If it's right in Scripture and it's clear, then it's right, right? We can have debates about eschatology, but you couldn't be more clear about these issues. And once you're going to say, well, these are cultural issues that Paul had, or as they often say, the modern Christian feminist, quote unquote, uh, is going to say, well, Paul was a woman hater. This is a Paul thing, right? Not a Paul thing, right? This is a biblical thing. Paul is writing as an apostle who's teaching us what, what God thinks. That's what the what the Bible teaches, not to mention that the rest of Scripture says that as Paul defers to the Corinthians, just as the law says, right? The women are not to be teaching in the church, in the synagogues, and that's just how it's supposed to be, and that's the way it's going to be here as long as I'm here until I get hit in the head and don't, don't know theology. I've been thinking this is what we do, and nothing should change. I, it, we should really be asking the question, yeah, it's time to defend yourself. What has changed in your thinking, right? How has this changed in your mind? I'm not here to blast anybody. I'm just saying we have to to be deferring, first question, to one rule of faith, which is God's word, and he's clear about the issue. Just like I, there cannot be a pastor who's a recent convert. Well, I became a Christian yesterday. I want to be a pastor. Well, uh, the smartest guy in our church. No, 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 no. It, it doesn't matter if you're the smartest guy in our church or not, right? That's what the Bible says. And if you're a female, right, the Bible says you cannot be a pastor at the church, right? You're supposed to be uh, led by males. Oh, I don't, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound good. Go say that on CNN and you're going to get roasted. Oh, well, I'm also going to be roasted if I say Jesus is the only way. Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, you got to trust in Christ. I'm just saying, when, when did we think we were going to have a copacetic relationship with the world? We're not. And so I'm just saying, I can't start kind of squeezing the church's doctrine into the mold of what the world's asking for. So the, 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 the role of elder, the role of pastor, elder, pastor, overseer, they're all episkopos, poimen, and presbyteros. Those Greek words are all used synonymously in scripture. They are representing the gift of an office within the church, and it's a role in the church, and that is exclusively defined in scripture as a male role. So I can't change that. Just like I'm not going to have a baby, and none of the men in here are going to have babies. That's an exclusive role that God has made, and uh, we're stuck with that. And it's fine. I mean, Unless you're, you know, not happy to follow what God has said, it's, it, sh- it should be fine with all of us. But women, yeah, I get it. When they're gifted and they're smarter than us and more godly than us, I get all of that. But God said this is the gender that needs to be the pastors in the church. Well, that was a fun question. Yes. Hey, Pastor Mike. So I uh, appreciate last week's discussion with the enlightenment. I'm a big history buff. So that was, that was pretty uh, solid there. So... On that note, say you're having a philosophical debate with somebody, their philosophy major, let's just put it that way, and they're open-minded to being convinced. So they've dabbled a little bit with the Bible, don't really buy into it. They're like, eh, prove to me that he really exists. It's not just some people saying stuff. So you point to Tacitus along with some other references. They look at him and go, okay, I can at least acknowledge that he exists. Now prove to me that he is who he says he is. How would you go about that? Yeah, well, number one, I don't like the footing of saying, hey, uh, prove to me, prove to me, prove to me. I, I want you to be convinced, intellectually convinced, right? But there is a kind of an adversarial uh, logic that people have. It's like, it's like 
my wife going, you know, if I flip that switch, the light's going to come on. Prove it to me. Prove it to me before I touch that, that thing, right? And I'm not saying try Jesus, right? And you'll see that it works. And, and, and that's where you might go in the illustration I'm just coming up with off the cuff. Um, but there is a sense in which you've got to approach this with, with an, an even-mindedness and an even-handedness that says, okay, let's just at least consider the claims and let's think of what the claims are. Right? And, and I think the historicity of the, of the scripture itself is a place that we're always going to end up going. We've got to go to the fact, as Francis Schaeffer did so well, in saying, first of all, does it make sense as a presupposition that there is a God that exists? And then has he revealed himself? Uh, and, and I think those are the issues where most people intuitively are going to, as some people have rightly said, there are some things that you can't not know. And one of those things is that there is a God. And then has he revealed himself if the Bible is his word? And not just because Tacitus mentions Jesus or because Josephus, you know, affirms what, what New Testament teaching says and mentions John the Baptist. That doesn't really matter. The point is, can we take this at its claim and then evaluate it honestly, which is going to lead us to things like, well, the thing I don't like about the Bible is it's filled with miraculous events like the resurrection of Christ. Well, you've got to then put that against some kind of, of test. Simon Greenleaf, historically, as an attorney, I think did that well and shows his process of thinking, and this is old school stuff. But he then says, okay, we come to a conclusion that he did rise from the dead. And then you take guys like C.S. Lewis that said, well, if he did rise from the dead, right, that leaves me no option but to believe what he taught. And since I already understand the veracity of the scriptures that then give us that information, then I'm stuck at, at some point being logically consistent, being a Bible-believing evangelical. So to talk philosophy, here's what I would do. I mean, I don't know if we have it in our bookstore, uh, but I would, for a guy like you, I would get the, the complete works of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, and if you, they don't have that, start with The God Who Is There. And his second, uh, He Is There and Not Silent. Those two books are good trimmers to start with understanding philosophy and why those truths are kind of hard in our day. Uh, and so, and if you do like philosophy, and I did mention the rise and triumph of the modern self, Carl Truman does a great job in listing the philosophies that have made us the modern culture that we are. But Francis Schaeffer, I thought, was before his time in trying to understand that this can logically be consistent. This is a, a sequitur uh, in logic. This is something that does follow. You just need to start by evaluating these things with honesty. And I think some people don't come to the dis debate honestly. They come with crossed arms. Well, prove to me, right? And you're saying, you know, light is a wave and a particle. Well, prove that to me. It's like, okay, some things that, that we're going to assert, you need to start with the body of assertion. This is something as a corpus, as a, as a thing that hangs together. Christianity hangs together as the result of reading what the Bible says. Now, does this make sense? Is that a reliable source? How do we match that with all the things that the Bible says it will match with, according to Romans chapter 1? It'll match with creation. It'll match with your conscience, Romans chapter 2. And then Scripture will then make that clear. Is every last passage about an Ammonite, something that I can go and say, well, there's no reference of that in the historical, you know, the London Museum. Uh, and I'm saying, well, okay, but this is it. When I see that there's enough things in the text that convince me beyond a reasonable doubt that these things are true, right, then I'm going to accept that the body of information that was given to me through the apostles and prophets, that this is, this is reasonable. And I embrace it. I become a Bible-believing Christian. Then when I find something that I don't quite understand, I drill down to see if I can understand it. And, and thankfully, that's why there is a body of intellectual Christians because they think it, 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 is, it is tenable. It makes sense. It all hangs together. So uh, Schaefer, great. He's a guy that I think before his time has made this clear. And I, I did quote Nancy Percy a couple weeks ago, who I think if 
for other people that are listening in on this conversation to think, well, I, I've tried Schaefer, it's too hard. Nancy Percy, who was part of the Labrie Institute there in Switzerland, who learned under Francis Schaefer, has popularized a lot of um, his teachings, and it's, it's really well done. Medallion Book of the Year and Christian Books, um, her first one, um, which I forget the name of off the top of my head, but Nancy Percy, that's a, that, she's, she's a great um, writer, inter, intersects with a lot of what uh, Schaefer said and did it, you know, a couple decades later, which was helpful. What's it called? Total truth. Is that what you said? Total truth. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Hey, we're out of time, uh, but that was fun, and uh, we'll do it next year, Lord willing. All right. Let me pray for you, Victor. Thank you. God, we do thank you very much for our church, for their um, appetite, for your truth, for your word for even the questions that reflect our ambassadorship that we're trying to represent you in a world. We're trying to even deal with fellow Christians that are struggling with points of doctrine that don't understand why we're not with the times. And then our evangelistic conversations. Uh, God, we want, to, uh, we want to think clearly. We want to be able to, as Peter wrote, as through the inspiration and, and the, the God-breathed process of your spirit, that uh, we ought to be ready to answer anyone who asks us to give a hope, uh, a reason for the hope that's within us. And so we want to be uh, continually studying your word and digging deeper that we might be able to represent you well in our generation. God, help us, please, uh, to, to think um, just more, uh, more consistently and even more, um, more intently on the truth that you have delivered to us. Thanks for this church. Thanks for our time. God, I pray you'd bless our week, particularly that week for our students out in, uh, in Arizona. Just pray that would be a great week in Jesus' name. Amen.